0: Hello and welcome to Carefully Taught, teaching musical theater with
1: Maddie and Kikow.
0: A podcast to discuss musical theater pedagogy and to create a community of sharing amongst musical theater educators.
1: Feel free to email us at carefullytaughtpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at carefullytaughtpodcast. I am so excited about today's guest on Carefully Taught, Caitlin Hopkins. Um, I mean... You know Kika we've had like Broadway performers and we've had really exciting uh, teachers and uh, Caitlin is like both somehow uh, I don't I it was just kind of interesting to see how this whole thing happened but you know she's been on Broadway in Noises Off and Anything Goes uh, she was off-Broadway nominated a Drama Desk Award for Bat Boy uh, Bear which I'm kind of interested in hearing about talking about uh, Great American Trailer Park musical and since 2009 correct me if I'm wrong, Caitlin, but since 2009, she has been running the musical theater program at Texas State, which she has turned into one of the most exciting and uh, uh, most talked about musical theater BFA programs in the entire landscape. Uh, So we are so lucky to have her. Uh, Caitlin, welcome to Carefully Taught, Teaching Musical Theater with Maddie and Kikau. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I feel so lucky uh, to be able to have a conversation with you, and for our listeners to hear you. So, um, you know, I it's hard to even know where to start in our conversation. I would love for our listeners just to hear a little bit about your uh, how how musical theater came to you. I mean, even before you 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 transitioned to primarily teaching in two thousand and nine, like. You know, it, you have a a theater legacy and and a, a a musical theater heart, and I'm just curious how how that developed and how you discovered musical theater in the very first place.
2: Oh, sure. Um, gosh, you know, boy, it takes you back, doesn't it? Um, well, I grew up in show business. I, I sort of like legit grew up in a trunk <laughs> because uh, my my parents both dragged me all over the world with them. I was I was always traveling. Uh, with my mother, my father, or my stepfather. Um, and they were all in show business. So so my dad um, was a Broadway producer, theater producer. And one of his uh, shows, he was the original producer, under a good man, Charlie Brown. And that happened when I was like three and a half, right? So you can imagine as a little human getting to see endless performances and rehearsals and just to be around that whole show being created um definitely informed um i think my trajectory you know um uh hair was also running at the time and um we had the same my dad had the same company manager uh as that show and so i was basically just sort of shuttled back and forth constantly between those two shows in terms of watching performances and i used to get up at the end of of hair and and, you know go up on stage they would invite the audience to come up and i would run around in my underwear (laughs) so i like to say that i actually made my broadway debut in hair (laughs) (laughs) um but my father was also a huge huge um supporter of playwrights of new work he produced uh, although your Charlie brown was one of his shows he primarily produced plays uh the west end broadway and playwrights um and he produced many many of tennessee williams plays and i mean just it launched so many writers careers I, I can't even begin to tell you and then my mother was an actress um her name was shirley knight and she had two oscar nominations and Tony Awards and Emmy Awards and Golden Globe Awards. I mean, she was really prolific in her work, and um, and my stepfather was a playwright, a screenwriter, and a television writer. <laughs> and so I was always, you know, between uh, mom and stepdad, I was always on film and television sets too. Um, my stepfather wrote um, Thunderball, like some of the James Bond films, Goldfinger. Uh, he actually. This is just kind of an interesting fun fact. His name was John Hopkins. I I actually used my stepfather's name. And um, a play that he wrote called Find Your Way Home, which was uh, in the mid 70s, was the first play ever produced on Broadway with homosexual subject matter, um, which is just kind of interesting. And he was a huge uh, supporter of the LBGTQIA community, um, although it wasn't called that at that time. He also wrote another play called "Losing Time" that my mother and Jane Alexander did at Manhattan Theater Club. Um, that was about two women who were who were uh, in a relationship together. So, um, anyway, that's uh, that's just to say, you know, I I grew up around our great American playwrights, you know. Um, i got to sit in rooms with tennessee williams and john guare and everybody i mean like you know uh, robert anderson and jerry lawrence and sydney kingsley <laughs> you know they were all um people who were a huge part of my life growing up and i got to you know go to the actor's studio with my mom and watch you know her acting class with lee and Strasbourg and you know watching uh directors like Francis Franco Zeffirelli, and Tom Pasquin and I mean just everybody. <laughs> so I I think there was no way around me, ultimately, um, being somebody who wanted to do new work, wanted to support new voices. Um, you know, I grew up with my my closest friends were people like um, Christopher Durang, and Teresa Rebeck, and Andrew Lippa, and you know, so like we we sort of all came up in the ranks together. Um, and and yeah, so I, I guess there, the musical component really was because as a little human, I was going to see your good man, Charlie Brown. <laughs> so when my dad produced the revival, and he was like, I think we need a few new songs. And we need new orchestrations. I'm like, you need to have Andrew do it. I'm telling you, like, he's gonna write like some amazing stuff and let him do new orchestrations. It's gonna be really great. And he's like, who, who are like the young, hot up and coming directors right now? I'm like, Michael Mayer, he's amazing. You gotta like, you gotta meet with him. <laughs> so it was super, super fun to sort of, um, you know, uh, co you know, help my dad. As, as in his career, my, my stepfather, um, I was his dramaturg and his editor for many, many years. Uh, did research for um, many of the things that he wrote, especially uh, there, he did a mini series for Showtime called uh, Hiroshima um, that Roger would directed. A very, very incredible piece if you haven't seen it. Um, did a lot of research for him on that. So, I, you know. I, I'm actually sort of surprised that I'm running a musical theater program because new plays and, and plays and film and television were really more where my interest was. Um, and I, uh, although I, I did go to school for a year and a half, I went to Franklin for a year and a half in the musical theater program um, and I left because at that time, if you got a job and you, and you left, you weren't allowed to come back. <laughs> Now I think they let you leave and come back. Um, But I ended up getting an incredible opportunity uh, when I was in college uh, to make my Broadway debut and ended up doing a play opposite Christopher Walken. And yeah, I just ended up not going back to school. Um, I was very lucky because I studied with great acting teachers and voice teachers and so sort of uh, got my education differently, if that makes sense. Um, I just always loved musicals. I was you know, my, my, I loved them and I always begged my mom to take me to see them. And I remember my 12th birthday for taking me to see Chorus Line and I couldn't get out of the the original production and I sat there just like sobbing and I couldn't get out of the chair and just like begged her to take me back the next day to see it again, you know, which we did. <laughs> that happened a lot. I remember when I saw Moving Out, I literally couldn't breathe after the matinee. I was like, <laughs> "This is so incredible! The storytelling is so amazing!" And so I went back and saw the evening show. <laughs> so I'm one of those people who like to, tends to go and see things multiple times, especially like in previews. I love going to see new plays in previews, and I think that's why I'm, you know, like my background with dramaturgy and um, producing new work uh, it was largely based on the fact that I'm very interested in the creative process.
0: It's... So exciting. It's amazing. Your, your background brought you to that point. Um, Maddie mentioned it, uh, in the introduction, but can you just give a little bit about Bat Boy, how that came about for you? Like that is just such an exciting, yeah. Go for
2: it. Yeah. Honestly, that was, um, with the exception of one other musical I did early early on in my career, um, that was really my, my the beginning of me starting to do some musicals in my career. Because really the first 10 or 15 years, like I was really doing film and TV and and plays. I was on a soap opera for three years and I was on those Star, Star Trek shows and all that stuff, right? So Bat Boy, um, I was living out in LA. I was born and raised in New York City, but I was living in LA for about ten years while I was doing a lot of my film and TV stuff, and um, got hooked up with the Actors Gang, which was a wonderful uh, theater company uh, out in LA, and they were doing this new little musical um, called Fat Boy um, in a in their little small space, which I think had like thirty five seats, and and we and we did the show to um, like a CD, right? There was no room to put a live band. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a completely different show i mean by the time we did it in new york four years later i think there were maybe two or three songs from that very first time that we did it in la before to ultimately what uh, people saw on stage in new york but um it was equity waiver theater which just meant you know they didn't pay anyone i think we got like 12 bucks a week and while i was you know my tv work was how i made a living and i was just doing that for fun and I loved it. It was just the wackiest, craziest show. And I fell in love with Larry O'Keefe. And, you know, I was just like, dang, this is cool. Um, anyway, he submitted it for the Richard Rogers Award, which it won, which gave us money to go do a workshop in New York. And we did a workshop in New York every year for like three years in a row. And over the course of that experience, they got you know producers and backers and eventually devin may and i were the only two like original cast members from la that saw it all the way through um but it's also the show i met my husband on (laughs) we've been together for over 20 years now so um so i'll always be grateful to that boy because thanks to that boy um jim jim is in my life
1: well that definitely makes it memorable but it's also sort of this landmark production like you know it's it's interesting because it didn't run for years and years, but it's no, well, like... September 11th happened and shut us down. So, yeah. but it's definitely made its mark. I feel like musical theater post Bat Boy is different, uh, and it's obviously a production that continues to be produced around the country. So there's a there's a moment in your career that I have been wanting to ask you about for some time. Um, you know, so you're this, you know, working actor in L.A. on television and movies. You you're doing Bat Boy, you're, you're you're doing musicals in New York, and then in 2009, you moved to Texas of all places <laughs> to run a the- a musical theater program. And at the time, you know, it wasn't necessarily a musical theater program that like- It,
2: it wasn't. I actually made it from scratch, Maddie. There you go. <laughs> so it's, it's not
1: like you took over Carnegie or, or one no, of those is, is long-standing musical theater programs. You decided to uproot your entire life and start a musical theater program from scratch in Texas. And I just, I want to know about that moment because what, why, what happened? Well, tell, tell us about that. Okay. I- Um, it's gonna sound crazy. I, I think, um,
2: something to know about me is like, I like to build things. Like I, I am inherently a facilitator. I think it's why I'm a good producer. Um, you know, I know how to put a lot of really smart people, brilliant people in a room together and let them do what they do best. Like, I feel like that's, um, and largely still, I think I learned from, you know, growing up uh, in the industry the way I did and working in so many different mediums. I mean, I produced for television, I produced for radio. I mean, I really, um, I don't have a long attention span, right? So, so what would happen is like, I would, I, I started acting in radio and voiceovers, so and I was like, this is fun. I love this. This is really cool. And I did that for like 10 years. And I was like, ah, okay, done. And I'm like, oh, maybe I would like producing that, you know, like I would sort of try Different things in the industry because it would catch my interest for a period of time. And then I would lose interest. And so I would try something else because people are like, but you've done so many different things. And it, yeah, because I'm, it's like that animated film with the squirrel in it, right? Like it's like squirrel, squirrel. Like,
1: <laughs> this would
2: sort of um, change my direction so that's just to say that i was on a national tour at the time i was doing dirty dancing i was playing baby's mother nobody puts baby in a corner i was supposed to go back to new york i did that for a year and um i was supposed to have like a few weeks down once the tour closed at the Pantages in l.a i was going to go back to new york i had been asked to do they were doing a revival of bye bye birdie which i had to back out of when i got this (laughs) job And to to this day, I'm like, I'm really sorry. Um, And I I was on tour and I just got a phone call one day from the gentleman who at the time was the chair of the department. And he said, I know you don't know me, um, but I were interested in having someone design a new BFA musical theater program. And your name keeps coming up. We were actually vetting somebody else. And the three people that we called when we told them what we were looking for, they all said, you know, there's this actress named Caitlin Hopkins. You should talk to her. Because they really wanted to think outside the box. They really wanted to, <clears throat> they were interested in developing new work. They were interested, they were interested in a lot of the things I was interested in. Um, and they called and just said, would you come interview? Well, because I tend to, like I said, lose interest in things, I was getting a little like kind of bored of acting. You know I just didn't I wanted to direct i want I wanted to direct more and produce more and I wanted to act less and it was just kind of crazy timing um I was really just acting because it was like I was good at it not because I really liked it anymore. <laughs> I liked the rehearsal process and then when I had to do the show I was like, oh shit. <laughs> I was like, can we stay in rehearsal? Can we just do previews? I'm really happy here. And then they'd be like, no, you've got a year long contract. You've got to be I'd be like, <laughs> you yeah. um, know? So I, I said yes, because I'm just somebody who says yes to everything. And I was like, we're not going to take this job. My husband's like, Caitlin, why are we going to Texas for this interview on your day off? Like, you know, like, why are we flying to take, like, we're not going to do this. This is crazy. You're, you have to go do this Broadway show. And I was like, Oh, come on. It'll be fun. Like, let's just go check it out. Well, we come here and there's like magic in this place. Like, I don't know what to tell you, Maddie. Like it, it makes no sense that I'm here. It makes no sense that they hired me. I really believe that the universe had a plan and wanted me to be of service. I had been asked, I had been praying on it, meditating on it for several years. My husband and I had been saying, we just want to be of service. We just want to do more for our community you know i had been raised by political activists you know i had been raised by people who were hippies who were marching in the civil rights movement who were my father produced uh, a mary baraka's the dutchman you know like they were people who believed at their core that it is our job to give back and to support young artists and so we came here and they're like "Hey." What would you do if we asked you to do this job? What would your one-year plan, your five-year plan, your 10-year plan be? Well, you know, like I said, like to build things. So I came in with a 35-page prospectus, handed it out to the personnel committee, and I was like, this is what I do. And they're like, Well, we want to build MFA programs on the back of this. I mean, we want you to be like the sparkly thing at the, you know, this is like the second largest theater department in the country. Hmm. It's like, really? I'm like, yeah. Close to a thousand majors. I was like, holy crap. And they're like, Well, I said, well, you can't build MFA programs on a top musical theater program with these facilities. I mean, they're nice, but if you want, you know, top talent, you're going to have to build something fabulous. And they said, okay. If you take the job, I was like, are you serious? Like, two years later, they broke ground on a brand new $60 million performing arts facility. Like, the president this university does not mess, people in Texas don't mess around. Like they, they really wanted this, and I really wanted to direct, and I loved teaching. I had worked for the Kennedy Center for the uh, Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival for years, for almost a, over a decade. Anytime my husband and I weren't working, we would go to those theater festivals and just, you know, judge the Irene Ryan Awards, teach master classes for free, like you know. Um, and I coached all my friends in New York on how to audition for film and TV. Like I loved teaching. I didn't think of myself as a teacher at the time, but I thought that sounds fun. That sounds cool. I know a lot (laughs) Be cool to to share it with somebody. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, I came down and interviewed and they offered me the job. And I just thought, well, when's that ever going to happen again? I didn't even finish my undergraduate degree. Are they crazy? They're like, oh, we're going to count your whole life and your whole, you know, 30, 40 years of working in every aspect of the industry <laughs> and they wanted somebody who could fundraise. Right. And I, I like raising money. I like doing that. And so, um, they asked me and I said, yes, because, and I thought I was just going to stay a year. I was like, well, I'll build, I'll build them something really cool. I think outside the box, like, can I have all, can I recruit the faculty from scratch? Can I build it all under one umbrella? So we're not like, farming classes out to the dance school movies. So they're like, you can do whatever you want. I had total agency. It was nuts. Now, I'd never been in academia before, so I didn't know how rare and unique that was. And I didn't realize you know, a lot of the politics that a lot of my friends and colleagues you know, that I now know all over the country, um, I didn't know what y'all go through. And I was also really lucky because Brent Wagner at Michigan was like my mentor. Um, just because two of my closest friends, Rachel Hoffman, who's a casting director, and Andrew Lipa, who's a composer, they went to Michigan. My husband went to Michigan, and so when I got this job, I was terrified, and I was like, "Can somebody call Brent Wagner and ask him if he'll talk to me <laughs> and tell me how he did what he did?" Because I was like, "Dude, that guy built a program. I mean, that's incredible what what Brent did." And I called him, and he's like, "Oh, get on a plane. Let's." I, he said, "I would love to. I would love to help you." if it hadn't been for Brent Wagner, the first three years or four years here, I would have lost my mind. Cause I had, I would call him. I would be like, okay, what do you do? First of all, what is, what's a personnel committee? What's (laughs) this committee? What's that committee? I was like, what does it mean when they use these terms? And he's like, okay, here's what it means. (laughs) And he would bring me there every year to teach. And then he would come here and like, basically, I mean, he was just, God bless Brent Wagner. I, I seriously, like he really gave me, um, was so generous. He was so generous in an environment that I really had no way to understand how to navigate it. I just um, had been asked to do something that I believed in, that I was really excited about to serve these beautiful students and and create this program. Um, And I think it really, again, was very in alignment with what how I had been raised, right? Which is that you you support each other, you help each other. It's not a competition. You're not competing with other programs. These are your colleagues. These are your mentors. I mean, John Stefano at Otterbein was also a mentor at the time. He reached. I can't tell you how many people, my first two or three years here, reached out to me and said, "Are you okay? Do you need anything? Do you need help?" I mean, John Stefano, I, to this day, like I'm just so grateful to to him for for things that he offered um, and the resources, the resource that he was for me. And so I've tried to pay that forward. I've really tried to pay that forward, um especially with colleagues who are in the profession and are transitioning into the academy you know, I have a whole consulting business where I'm like, let me help you prepare for your interviews. Let me help you prepare your materials. Come here, teach a master class, like, you know, come practice, because they're going to ask you to teach a class at your interview. And, you know, so I've helped a lot of um, professional colleagues who who have gone into the academy in the last, um, you know, six or seven years, uh, helped prepare them for their final interviews on campus and their materials and the submit and stuff. Because I just think it's so important that we all help each other that was a very long answer to how did you get to Texas?
0: It was a great answer though. It was fantastic. It was perfect. Um, I love hearing how it happened. And even like those, those first couple years, we are now, you know, 2022, the program has grown. You've um, just like everyone has uh, had to survive uh, pandemic issues, masks, no masks, life. Um, I'm wondering what, what you could talk about the current state of things are um what is what is what productions are happening now for you and and just what 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 um sort of fast forwarding from how it began to where we are tell us
2: yeah um gosh well we're now uh yeah, I was just, just trying to think of like how to even answer that question. It's such a big question uh, in terms of, you know, related to changes with the pandemic and all that. Um, but we're doing Susical this semester. Um, the kids do plays and musicals, you know, uh, as part of the experience performance opportunities here. Last semester they did hair. Um, and last semester was harder because we were all still masked all the time but the kids really really wanted to do uh, the performance of performances of hair in the fall without their masks so they all potted and like didn't see anybody <laughs> else for the whole time and we all agreed that we you know would test twice a week so that they could do the show without masks and we were successful and got through an entire like tech dress rehearsals and performance, like two weeks in total, where nobody tested positive and they were able to do their show live in front of an audience uh, without without their masks, which was amazing. That was the first time we were in front of an audience again. Um, and musical, uh, that's the plan as well. You know, we're we're still masked in classes. Um, I. Th- just mainly honestly because the students really want to stay safe. They want to stay healthy. Nobody wants to get sick, right? So everybody's vaccinated and boosted and everybody's got their mask on in class but then when they do their work sessions, they'll take their masks off. Right? Um and they will, you know, definitely be without their masks for susceptible because we things are definitely so much better and we we haven't had uh, I think we had two positive uh cases within the program at the very top of the semester we haven't had any since then so we've been very fortunate um but the kids are just crazy responsible you know like they're so committed to just um you know being able to do their work being able to be together in a room so i don't know but i have have to
0: say there's also a um a, an amazing social media presence mm-hmm. that I just want to follow up on. I mean, oh, I, thanks. I'm I, I, am, that. <laughs> I am a man of a certain age that does not create content, but does kind of look at you know, sure. TikToks every now and then. And I said, oh, what sure. is this? And it was fantastic. Oh, so tell us a little you. bit about that.
2: Oh, well, you know, it was one of my passions for a minute uh, was marketing. <laughs> so um, I, yeah, I had a real, a real passion for marketing at one point. I I thought maybe that's what I wanted to do. Uh, it was around the same time that I was like, maybe I want to be a literary agent, maybe I want to be a manager. I don't know, had a moment. And um, and so a lot of the sort of I don't say branding, but like the marketing of the program and the YouTube channel and the social media and all of that was just um, you know, I I we were a new program and we didn't, we don't have a track record. Right. I mean, we kind of do now. Right now, we do. Right, a decade later. But when we first started, I, I I was going after the top talent in the country, that were you know could get into all the top programs but couldn't afford to go there. That's that's who I was targeting. Right, because we were able to give everybody in-state tuition, and we have one of the lowest tuitions in the country. That's still true right and so but i needed to um i think prove quality and uh you know production values and the level of i mean we have one of the best design tech programs in the country everything is designed and built here by our students everything even our props right that's pretty impressive right and so you you want it's not just about like showing the talent it's about like hey look at our facilities look at the caliber of the costumes and the sets and and all of that stuff um the professional musicians that play in our pit that are all Austin based musicians, you know, all that this is that. It's just a, uh, an opportunity to do that. So I sort of built it and then I handed it over to the students. Right. So, and I did it in collaboration with my students where I sort of went to the kids that were, you know, very savvy about social media and YouTube and stuff at the time. And I was like, Hey, do you think we should do it? And, like, yeah. and they helped me build it. And now it is completely um, run by, by the students. And, um, you know, we sort of have a whole system in place with alumni, so that uh, we have a delivery system for them to let us know what they're doing, so that we can continue to uh, elevate and amplify and promote what our alumni are doing. Um, yeah, so it's it's just fun, you know. And then the kids completely did that TikTok. I mean, that's I, I'm so blown away by by what they've done with that. I just think it's really clever and and beautiful, you know. Um, our students made this really really beautiful uh, video for Black History Month. I don't know if you had an opportunity to see that the color purple reprise and and I was just so proud of them and so proud of that video. And, um, you know, it's nice to have a delivery system to to get some of those things out into the world.
1: That's an interesting, you know, we've t- we've been talking a lot about your history and the history of Texas State, but one of the, th- there's a lot of reasons why, uh, that you have, uh, there's a lot of reasons why Texas State in the 13, 14 years that you've been there has become one of the leading programs in the country. Um, and we could talk about all of them, but one of the things that I have been really interested in conversating with you uh, if you will uh, is um, you are an activist you you said you came from activists you are somebody that stands up for what is right and we um, we are teaching musical theater with a very that has a very problematic past in its infrastructure in its in in the material that we have in our canon and you've done an incredible job of really empowering your students' voices and 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 raising up their voices. And I think they're doing a lot of the leading of of the Texas state identity. but i'm I'm curious to talk to you about how you manage teaching musical theater history slash producing shows in our canon with as problematic as so much of the material is.
2: Yeah. Um, yes. So there's a lot of components to the question that you just asked. Um, I I very actively recruit artists who are activists, right? So we're, we're going after a certain type of human to come here and help move the art form and the industry forward. And we're also looking for students who also are directors, also are composers, also are playwrights, also are choreographers, and creating opportunities for them to have specialized tracks within within those uh, areas of interest in addition to the musical theater performance. And so there's no world where you successfully um, navigate the type of things that you're talking about unless you do it in collaboration with the artists that you're serving, right? So I've always, um, had my students select the musicals that we do every year because <laughs> then they can't give me shit. <laughs> I'm like, Hey, you picked it. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it, it really, um, it's been a journey, you know, uh, like I said, we, we, we tend to really attract students who are, um, what I'm gonna say, artists, activists, and inherently understand that being an artist is being of service. We we are serving our communities through storytelling. That's what we do. And um, using, um, well, let me say this. I don't think that we can change the systemic racism in the industry until we change the pedagogy. Right? So the foundation, like we're the educators, we're the people that are educating to the next generation, right, of storytellers. And anti-racist theater pedagogy and social justice has to be key pillars in education. And in how we teach what we teach and why we teach it and who we teach it to <laughs> and for right like so a lot of what we're doing here is what i'm gonna actually call research right because you've got to you've got to unpack what's there you know there's value uh, my friend marty austin lamar will tell you this right there's value in studying Lee Strasberg and studying Meisner and studying. Right? Yeah, there were white guys, right? But they, but they. There's value there, right? Um, but you have to sort of uh, separate what is technique, what is my ability to teach you how to do something in a healthy, sustainable, repeatable way. That in and of itself doesn't have any biases in it, right? That doesn't have um sexism racism ableism like it doesn't have all of that attached to it it's simply my ability to teach you how to do something that you love in a healthy sustainable repeatable way right that is what is that is technique where we run into problems is when we start having an opinion about it (laughs) right and trying to be like well if you do it this way it's better if you do it this way, you'll get hired. If you if you look this way, sound this way, dance this way, act this way. If we try to fit you into this type and this mold, that is what musical theater is. Well, that's where we get into problems. That's where the systemic racism really, really lives. Because you are not then educating to the human that's in the room you're trying to make make the humans in the room fit into this ideal and this idea right that is inherently white centered right so even that sort of traditional musical theater pingy sound right when the vocal quality and texture that is an inherently white sound right so how can i teach you how to sing in a healthy way right good just solid singing technique and still allow your voice your culture your ethnicity your lived experience everything that you all gets to be present on your voice so that we're not trying to make you sound like someone else we're not trying to make you look like someone else in a small thin white body right that we are culturally responsive in our teaching methods That we are teaching the whole artist and everything that they bring into the space. But to do that, we have to do less. And that's the thing. This is where I think we have resistance right now in the academy. To do this kind of work, to educate in this way, it actually means you have to get to know the artists that are in the room with you before you educate them. That takes time. You also have to teach everyone a common vocabulary that creates a safer way to work, right? Whether it's the intimacy uh, theater um, terminology, which I love, right? Like everybody here, I'm like, hey, sometimes you don't even know why your body's having a response, it just is. And and just being able to say button is is such a gift, especially for my students of color, especially for, um, I mean, just anybody who's experienced uh, trauma or oppression in any way, right? To be able to say, just just pause, just button, just stop for a second so that they have a moment to, to identify what it is that's happening, right? But for all of that, time, we have to slow down, people. We have to do less better, and those are a lot of the questions that we're asking. I'm like, okay, great. What is an intro to musical theater class? Because you, what you asked about, Maddie, is musical theater history. I'm like, oh, baby, yeah, okay, absolutely. But I'm, that's that's way cart horse, right? <laughs> like, can we just go back to intro to musical theater? Can we just like, because foundationally that whole curriculum you know that i've developed here is actually all the wellness stuff it's all the life skills and it's and it's the getting to know you right it's all of that culturally responsive or teaching methods anti-racist theater pedagogy like uh giving everybody time and space to understand what it is where we are what we're doing where it came from attributing things appropriately, right, and giving people common vocabulary and a way to move forward in a safer way. So, uh, you know, I I, I don't think you can be in arts education right now and not understand that you have to find a way to have social justice and and anti-racism be key pillars in education the, because the industry itself can't change until we change right so we're educating to what it should be not what it is and that's a little scary i'm not gonna lie it's a little scary because i'm like am i serving these students you know i i had one of my um students of of color say to me a couple weeks ago, well, you see us that way. You see me as the prince in the Disney show. But is the industry? And I'm like, yes, they are, because you are the industry. You are the way. You are the box. There is no box. You're the box. There's no type. You're the type. You have to go in and sing that the way you would sing it, not the way you think right, uh, uh, one of my students of color said to me, and this was very difficult to hear and heartbreaking, we did a, a mock audition and I said, hey, how'd that go for you? And she said, not great. I said, why, honey? She said, I realized I was using my white voice. I was like, your white voice? What does that even mean? Oh, wow, okay. Oz, please. And that opened up a whole conversation, right? And my other kids of color in the class were like, Oh, me too. I do that too. Well, I'm like, Okay, why do you do that? And, and my larger body kids come in as freshmen, right? They've been made to, to, to sing older parts, since they were like 13, right? And they come in with these huge, very mature, like if you closed your eyes, you'd think, that larger um, bodied kid in the class was 40 years old. And I'm like, can you just sing like you? They're like, what do you mean? I said, well, what's your authentic voice sound like? Like, not when you're trying to sound like a, a 40, but like you're not, gonna, you, You're you're 18. You, you need to play your age, regardless of your size. They don't even know what that means. And then, you know, when they finally access that, then we've got, you know, floods of tears because they've never actually been given permission to sound the way they sound. So I, you know, I don't know if that answers your question. I can tell you that that I think Nicole Brewer is doing extraordinary work uh, related to conscientious theater training and anti-racist theater pedagogy. And you know, if uh, I, and I think, you know, I know it costs money, but schools have to, you know, like then do one less production. You know, we had the chair of our department say that too. Like, we don't have the money. I said, really? Okay, then let's cancel a show. Because what is the priority here? We have to do, right? They're like, well, we don't have them. Oh, no, yeah, we do. We just have to to think about our budgets differently. We have to think about everything differently. We have to think about our hiring practices differently. We have to think about it differently. So don't tell me no, because no just means you're still thinking within a broken system. So let's rethink it and reframe it. I also think you know Broadway for Racial Justice is an incredible resource that you know uh, ha- has been God such a gift to us. You know, every time I like rethink of, you know, we go we did a whole curricular review related to um, uh, anti-racist theater pedagogy and uh, all of all of these types of issues and biases. Mainly just a, 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 went in or like, okay, where are all the biases? Where do they live? How do we navigate? <laughs> in every area, I'm not just racism. Um, and they've been an incredible resource, you know, as you, as, as we start to, we revamped our whole season selection committee protocol in the department, how we pick shows, how we cast shows, how we produce shows, how do we produce shows with racially charged e. content safely, like all of that stuff. And I just like send it to them, and they look at it, and they give me feedback, and they're like, "This is great. This is not good. You need to rethink this." Here's some feedback on that, right? Like they have been so again so generous um, in in helping us reframe things. Um, but again, all of that's done with the students. Everything, you know, we're we're doing everything in collaboration uh, with our students. We always have. Since the, since the program first started, so that wasn't that wasn't a big transition for us. Like we've always done that. Um, we haven't always done it well, but we've always done it. <laughs>
0: it is so amazing. It's so amazing to hear you to, to hear you talk about these and and to talk about these topics. Um, you mentioned it briefly, but the, the 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 focus that you've brought to mental health mental health awareness. Your own organization. Um, uh, And the thing, and the way that that focus or refocus shifts a student's perspective, it just makes so much sense. So, can you talk a little bit about that um, particular topic?
2: Sure. Um, The first couple years I was here, there were too many students suffering with mental health issues. And then I was like, oh, you know what? I've seen that my whole life in the industry too. You know, that's uh, very common. And I thought, well, what do you do about that? Because we're not therapists and we shouldn't be, right? We're not equipped to, to navigate a lot of the, um, the health stuff that we, that we see um, with our students. And so I sort of went on this, this journey of, well, what do I do when I've got a student in trouble? Like What do I do? And everyone's like, Oh, well, I had a friend at another university say, Oh, you'll get used to it. Just send them to the health center. I said, I'll get used to it. I'm not going to get used to it. I've got a kid in a fetal position, like having an anxiety attack. I'm not going to get used to it. I've got another student who just got diagnosed with bipolar. I'm not going to get, and has to go to the hospital. Like, no, or with an eating disorder, whatever. I'm like, Nah, I can't just, by the time you're in the red zone, sending them to the health center is is not going to, solve anything right so i sort of went on this journey anyway with like how do you educate to wellness because we we spend a lot of time on vocal health and physical health but not a lot of time on mental health and so ultimately along with a a lot of brilliant humans a sports psychologist um, therapist of that vedic meditation expert a mindfulness expert a communications expert. I mean, we we developed um, over quite a few years and did a lot of research um, on this curriculum that we developed for um, performing artists. And it's called living mental wellness. So if you if you go to livingmentalwellness.com wellness.com, you can find out more about about it. The we wanted to make it accessible and available. So we created video modules um, during the pandemic so that it is affordable and accessible for people. Um, but what it is basically is a life skills program, right? Cause like I said, like, we're not, we, you can't, <laughs> you can't get into the world of therapy, but what you can do is get into the world of life skills, right? So what the research proves is that if you increase people's life skills, you decrease their mental health symptomology, you decrease depression and anxiety, you decrease, you reduce stress. If you increase life skills. So it's a life skills program. That's a developmental model. That foundationally is based in brain science, right? The science of the brain, what happens to your body under stress? You learn how to self-regulate, you learn mindfulness techniques, and then you learn time management, goal setting, coping skills, communication skills, leadership skills, problem-solving skills. And you learn how to utilize all those together. And in the process of, um, practicing those lives those are going to reduce your stress you're going to reduce your anxiety because you're managing your life better right and that has been that was a huge game changer when we started utilizing um that curriculum here it's been a huge game changer and I actually um last summer we were asked we have a teacher certification program because so many educators wanted access to it and educators on the high school elementary school um, middle school level. So last summer we sort of uh, we had this opportunity uh, to teach 450 high school, elementary school, middle school like um, arts teachers in the San Antonio ISD district um, that are going to be certifying uh, to utilize that curriculum. And I recently um, did a presentation for like all the fine arts directors in six different states um, for all the high schools. And I have another one coming up in the summer. Um, we're now working with athletic directors all over the country and high schools and middle schools that are utilizing the curriculum for their athletes. So, it, all I can tell you is it works. You know, it, it really, it really, really does work. And I think that um, I think we're failing our students if we're not um, educating to the life skills. And here's why: because higher education assumes that every single kid comes in with the same level of time management skills, goal setting skills, problem problem solving, coping, communication, right? It assumes that everybody has the same level of skills. And then if they don't, they just flunk out. And the universities will say, well, how come we lose 20% of our freshmen? I'm like, well, how about because you're not educating them with what you should be educating them with, which is leveling the play, playing field with life skills and don't I really don't like it when people say to me well you know diversity i mean you know we accept them and then they they don't make it they can't stay you know and I'm like well, because they don't have the advantages a lot of those students don't have the same advantages you we absolutely have to educate to life skills we have to because you don't get to say, right, oh, well, yeah, they flunked out. Well, because you weren't paying attention and you weren't giving them the tools they needed to succeed in that class. You weren't giving them the tools they needed to win in managing their work-life balance because our industry is really busted with that idea that you got to kill yourself for your for the art and dance through the pain and you know sacrifice your life and you know grind 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 and this idea it's one of the things i hate about the academy if i may vent for a moment (laughs) i freaking hate this idea that you're supposed to just like burn yourself out and that's some badge of honor like just killing yourself for this art form. Like that's, oh, I'm so tired. Oh, I was in a 10 out of 12 for 12 days. Why, why, why are we going from classes at eight o'clock in the morning till six at night with no break for them to meditate or have a snack or have lunch and then going to rehearsals for Why are we even doing that? It makes absolutely no sense. So like work-life balance, you. Why aren't we doing quality over quantity? Why is quantity a win? Why is doing more a win? You're just burning all of us out, the faculty and the students. And I, I got to be honest with you guys, I'm not interested anymore. Like I don't, I, don't, I don't want to perpetuate that broken thing. I would rather do something else then be part
1: of the problem. Caitlin, I gotta say um, there were several times in, in the last 20 minutes of this conversation or so that I got chills, that I got goosebumps, and I even found myself getting a little emotional with tears in my eyes. You are saying everything that educators and students need to hear, and I just am so grateful for your voice and that you've used your position in life to elevate these conversations that we really should have been having a long time ago um, because there were a lot of other things you could have done with your life. You know, you've talked a lot of today about being a servant, uh, being of service to other people, and that is so clear in the way that you have, are moving through the world, and I'm just so grateful to you and, and what you're saying and what you're doing. So, thank you so much. For everything that you just shared with us, you know, it, we're we're running out of time, and we always end our episode with a recommendation from our guest. What what would you, what re- resource would you recommend to uh, to our listeners?
2: Well, I'm just going to give you like my two favorite books that I think are essential for teaching musical theater students. Or three, how about that? Uh, Reason to Sing, Craig Cornelia's book is absolutely the definitive book on how to act the song. Um, he's a master teacher and it's like being in his class reading this book and and the students love it. It's really accessible. It's just reason to sing. Absolutely best book out there, definitive book for how to act the song. Um, I'm sure there's nobody out there listening to this that doesn't use backwards and forwards by David Ball, but it is, you know, the be all and end all. I mean, it, It is, I use it in the beginning acting class and the, you know, score libretto analysis class. I mean, it's terrific for playwrights, directors, actors. That is just an imperative, I think an imperative book to have in your curriculum. Um, Other favorite book, oh God, my sophomores love it so much, The War of Art, um, I think is a a really interesting tool in helping artists to navigate their own resistance and, and to start to, understand uh, and look at how to develop their original voice, their unique selves. Love that book, The War of Arts by Stephen Pressfield. Um, livingmentalwellness.com. If you, you know, it's definitely a resource for uh, life skills and and, uh, wellness for artists. I highly recommend that. Um, And I highly recommend, like I said, uh, Nicole Brewer's um, anti-racist theater training. Uh, Broadway for Racial Justice is an incredible resource. I uh, really, really am very grateful to that organization um, for just endlessly uh, being there to support and facilitate. And, yeah, just being amazing out there.
0: What fabulous recommendations. Literally, every single one. I'm like, yes, yes,
2: yes. and <laughs> oh, so If great. you need a good dry throat lozenge. <laughs> yes. you need a good dry mouth lozenge, I'm going to recommend Fontest.
0: <laughs> Montist. Perfect. Montist? I love it. Oh, yeah. Hopefully soon, you know, our podcast will grow big enough and we'll have, um, you know, ad space. We'll have sponsors. Um, <laughs> we're, we're such a niche podcast as we speak, but, but soon, soon we'll grow to that. Thank you so much for being with us today. This has been such a pleasure. I, as Maddie was saying, we, this, even this conversation is going to serve so many different populations, the educators, students, um, people even interested in, in applying to colleges, right? Like if even before um, they are auditioning for us, they, they are coming with some of these um, resources or, or this base understanding of things, it, it's great. So thank you so
1: much. Thank you, Caitlin, so much for taking the time to do this. You are a true inspiration, um, and we are so lucky that you carved out the time to chat. Music for Carefully Taught was provided by Joshua Haig. For more information, visit JoshuaHagueMusic.com.